All right, guys, so that was a highlight here. Let's jump back into Proverbs now, and let's talk about uh, the fear of the Lord. And we've stopped here. We've kind of pulled the car over, and we're looking at uh, this great theme of Proverbs. Um, chapter 1, verse 7, here's where we are. Here, here's where we have parked. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, we've stopped here because the fear of the Lord is the main theme of Proverbs. And, th- and this is what I said. That this is the argument of this book. You don't get wisdom by information. You get, inf- you get wisdom through a relationship with the all-wise God. That, that's the point of all this. <clears throat> you cannot separate your wisdom as a person with your relationship with the God of wisdom. And that's why it says here, it's the fear of the Lord that is beginning wisdom. It's, it's, not, it's not knowing the right source. It's not gaining the right information. It's knowing the God of the Bible. Now, uh, I know it's been a couple of weeks, so we'll just review here a little bit. Remember, this word fear can be used in two very different senses in the Bible. It can be uh, what we call, first of all, terror fear, which is terror because of danger or threat. That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy to understand. And that is one of the ways that uh, fear is used in the Bible, even the fear of the Lord. There are times when the fear of the Lord has nothing to do with knowing intricacies about his character or his wisdom or his ways. It's, it's just sheer terror because you are in the presence of the God who spoke all creation into existence. Another way that it's used is what we're going to call awe-fear. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, and that is awe or reverence or uh, worship that leads to honor, love, and worship. And that's more complicated, as we said, because there's more moving parts. There's more um, intricacies to that form of fear that we will unpack as we move along here. Okay? So we think of it as profound respect mingled with love, devotion, and awe. Respect, esteem, reverence, honor, adoration, glory, all of those things are facets of this thing called the fear of the Lord as we're thinking about in terms of awe or reverence. Okay? And we looked at some of that last time. Now, we also noted last time, and again, this is review, this is not in your notes, uh, review from two weeks ago. For Solomon, the fear of the Lord is really the theme of his writings. You will see that in Proverbs, you'll see it in Ecclesiastes. Uh, you even see it to some degree in Song of Solomon, although it's hidden in the, in the sense that, that Solomon is pointing to a relationship to the Lord as uh, really the key even in marital love and in human relationships. But we see that. And it is a theme of Proverbs. All of those verses there that you see uh, are reflective of um, the fear of the Lord theme in just the book of Proverbs itself. Okay, so I want to begin today by giving you a definition, and this is uh, borrowed and adapted from uh, my former college pastor. He was uh, the student ministries pastor at John MacArthur's church for a number of years, Rick Holland. Uh, many of you know that name. He's now senior pastor uh, up in uh, the Kansas City area. And uh, this, is, this is what Rick said. I, I remember this from when he was teaching us back at uh, the Master's Seminary. He said this, the fear of the Lord means considering him dangerous when sin is present and awesome when sin is forgiven. You got it? The fear of the Lord means considering him dangerous when sin is present and awesome 
when sin is forgiven. And the reason I like that definition is it brings together both aspects of fear. And depending on your relationship with Christ determines which form of the fear of the Lord is appropriate. If you are apart from Christ, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, if you are living in sin apart from God and apart from the gospel and apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, all God is to you is a threat in terms of the fear of the Lord. You remember Pastor Terry as he... uh, uh, was in Romans chapter 3 several weeks ago, and, and the, the summary statement that describes humanity in their fallen state is what? There is no fear of God before their eyes. When there ought to be, that's the implication, there ought to be. God is no one to trifle with. He is no one to mess around with. This, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords And you and I depend on Him for every breath of life. And to not fear the God who made you and sustains you and who through our own rebellion and disobedience we have put ourselves on the other side of a relationship with Him. In fact, the Bible goes further. We have made ourselves through our own rebellion God's enemies. And you do not want to be on the wrong side of the battle lines as God comes in all His glory and all His power, all the armies of heaven behind Him, and He's coming to destroy you. He's coming to destroy all who would reject Him and His Son. It's one of the things, uh, uh, men, in our, our, our Revelation study that we're doing uh, on Friday mornings, that's one of the things that's really just been sobering for the men that are there. And, and those of you that are there, maybe you can nod your heads in agreement to this if you, if you think this is accurate. But part of what the book of Revelation is designed to do is to help us to see that whether you think things are going well here right now or not, there is a sobering conclusion to human history. And the only thing that matters in that day is what is your relationship with the Lord Jesus? So we might look around and say with, with, with uh, the unbelievers in the Bible, God doesn't know. God doesn't hear. See, we just, we just carry on in life and nothing happens. See, we can sin and sin and go our own way and there's no lightning bolts from heaven. There's no voice saying don't do that. We, we're getting away with unrighteousness. That's what an ungodly world says. And yet the book of Revelation reminds us that there is coming a day when every person will give an account. And in that moment, this planet will dissolve away and all that will matter is, did we know the Lord Jesus or not? So to fear God... To not fear God when there is reason to fear God... Remember John John Murray's quote is the essence of impiety. What it means to be ungodly, if you could boil it down to one statement, is to not fear God when you have reason to fear Him. And because of our rebellion and our wickedness and our sin, sinful, broken humanity has every cause to fear God. And yet, and yet, what happens to that danger-fear? That threatening fear when we bow the knee 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we put our trust in Him alone. And that relationship is restored. And our sin is removed. And, and God, as the great judge of all history, declares that person not guilty, but righteous. Not just declaring us righteous, but then He says, I would like to adopt you into my family. Would you come? And it's almost, it's almost like... It's it's almost like a small child of a great, powerful uh, world leader, you know, a, a president or a king or or a, uh, a prime minister or someone like that, and and you know he he um, wages war, he he uh, makes commands, and everybody uh, follows them. He puts together legislation, he he runs the world, but his four-year-old just crawls up into his lap, somewhat oblivious to all of those things, and snuggles in and says, this is my dad. And so that that terror fear, that danger fear, turns into awe fear when the God who runs the heavens and the earth wants to be our father and calls us into relationship. And so that, that fear is turned into awe and reverence and love and worship. And as that four-year-old grows up, he comes to recognize who his father is, this great, amazing, powerful world leader. But he's still dad. So that's something of what the Bible is getting at when it teaches that the fear of the Lord means considering him dangerous when sin is present and awesome when we have that relationship with him in Christ and our sin is forgiven. Okay, does that make sense? Are you with me? Uh, what a great def. I've, I've not come across a better definition of the fear of the Lord other than that. So, all right, here we go. So what does the fear of the Lord look like? Let's get into the meat and potatoes here of the message this morning. What does the fear of the Lord look like? And we're just going to wander through the scripture. We're going to try to answer two questions this morning. What does the fear of the Lord look like? What does it mean? Okay, I get it, Keith. What does it look like in my life? And then the second question we're going to try to answer is, what does it look like in practice? Okay, how does it actually flow out in practice? So first of all, I'd like you to see with me that fearing God is a choice. Fearing God is a choice. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 27. Now, this the context here is wisdom is talking about those who hate wisdom and reject instruction. We'll talk about this more next week. But what's happening in these early chapters is Solomon takes wisdom and he personifies it. You remember this from your English classes? Personification is when you take something that is not a person, but you give it person attributes in order to communicate something important about that concept. And we understand wisdom is not a person. It's an impersonal thing. But in Solomon, in writing this first chapter, he turns wisdom into a person. In fact, he doesn't just turn wisdom into a person, he turns folly or foolishness into a person. And one of the things you see in the early chapters of Proverbs is you have, you have lady wisdom and you have madam folly. And the text goes back and forth between these two ladies, if you were, the lady of wisdom and the lady of foolishness. And we as the readers get to see the contrast between God's ways and man's ways, as it were. But notice with me, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 27, when your dread comes like a storm, 
This is wisdom speaking. Your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, meaning will, will seek wisdom, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, the fear of God is a choice. We can't sit around and wait to automatically become wise people. In fact, one one of the themes of Proverbs is God has wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. So seek God. Yearn for that wisdom. Ask for that wisdom. Study the scriptures for that wisdom. Don't, don't sit around and just think that, that becoming a wise person is something that automatically happens. In fact, this, this book is going to say the opposite, especially in parenting contexts. Children do not automatically become all that God wants them to be. It takes godly parents who intervene to teach wisdom. And that's, that's the call here. Fearing God is not something that just happens. We must decide as an act of our will that we will choose the fear of God instead of other things. So fearing God is a choice. Notice number two, fearing God means hating evil. Uh, flip the page to the right, just a few pages to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. And you're gonna, are you reading Proverbs, by the way? Yes. Are you reading it at least once a week? Okay, Nick is. Anybody else? Okay, good, good. Um, what are the rest of you doing with your week? You think I'm kidding, don't you? Look at my smile. See? Um, yeah, be reading prop. You, you will not benefit from this study unless you are super saturated with the Proverbs. There is a lot of information here. Uh, and yet Proverbs comes to us in sort of these bite-sized chunks, and so it's a great book uh, you, you can read a, a proverb a day, like, like I uh, talked about a several weeks ago. So, so at least be spending one time a week in Proverbs so that you can be keeping up with us here. Fearing God means hating evil. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. See that there? Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. The emphasis of this text is on the pride arrogance, evil way, and the perverted mouth. Those are, if if we take evil and we were to put it under a microscope, we see things like pride and arrogance, evil ways, perverted mouth, and what it means to fear God is to hate those things. We, we We might say, as a sort of a caricature of Christianity, that Christians should never hate anything. And, you know, we, we typically know what people mean. In fact, there were, um, there were some picketers. There were some picketers at the ACBC conference in Indianapolis. A church. A church that came and picketed the conference. Do you know why? Because last year, last year's annual conference, we said that we think the homos- that homosexuals need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the church's go- job to go and minister the gospel to them. And there's a church that thinks that's wrong because God hates those people and does not want them to be saved. That's, that, is, that is so far from biblical truth that it's almost hard to react to. We are not to hate people. We are not to hate people. 
We are to love people, love our neighbor, minister the gospel to them. But according to this verse, there are some things that Christians need to hate. And what we need to hate is evil. We'll see this as we unpack this later on. But you guys understand that, that hating evil, especially the evil that resides inside of you, is one of the secret keys to growth in Christ. What this is saying is to fear the Lord is to grow in hatred of evil. As you come to know God and love Him and learn His Word and worship Him and stand in awe of Him, you should see as fear of God increases, as love for Him increases, you should also see a hatred for evil and wickedness increase, especially the hatred and sin that is remaining within us. I mean, and to put it bluntly, part of the reason we are fumbling around in our sanctification and growth as Christians, meaning we're not growing as quickly as we would like to, is because we just love our sin too much. And, and Solomon is saying, let me help you with that. As you come to know and submit to and worship and love and serve and obey this God, you will see a growing hatred of sin and the result will be continued sanctification psalm 97 10 says hate evil we just read this hate evil you who love the lord there's a contrast do you love god good then you should hate evil and we can actually flip that around can't we what does it say about our relationship with god when we love evil when we love our sin it means we're not loving god as we ought to right or Amos chapter 5, this is an interesting, Amos is prophesying against the house of Israel during the time of uh, Jeroboam and Uzziah's uh, rule. And he says this, you don't need to turn there, but Amos says this to those wicked nations, For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Listen to this. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. For perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. If that was true in the day of Israel's sin, is it not true today in our country, in our world, that it is not one of the keys to ministry, helping people to hate what is evil? And love what is righteous instead of loving what is evil and condemning what is righteous? You know, Pastor Cherry talked about this a couple of months ago. We're, we're living at the end of Romans 1 where people not only revel in what is ungodly and evil, but they give hearty approval to those who practice those things. So fearing God means hating evil. We fall into sin sometimes because we love our sins more than God. The fear of the Lord means hating evil, especially our own sin. So we might, we might ask ourselves before we move on from this point, this question. Is there something in my life that God would call sinful that I am hanging on to and I am loving more than God himself? That's the challenge of this. What is it that we need to let go of this morning? Number three, fearing God motivates obedience. Fearing God motivates obedience. Let's go back to the book of Nahum. And uh, do you remember where that is? 
I'm sorry, Nehemiah, excuse me. I saw N. Nehemiah. Yeah, that is going to make a... If you're in Proverbs, that is going to change which direction you go, whether you're going to Nehemiah or Nahum. What's going on at the time of Nehemiah? You remember Nehemiah was um, part of the uh, captivity, and uh, he was... um, uh, he was uh, serving under a uh, pagan king, and uh, he became convinced that God wanted him, after he had a chance to go to Jerusalem and see the destruction of the, the uh, Babylonians, that uh, God was calling him to go back and rebuild the wall. And he, he experienced setback after setback, conflict after conflict, one thing after another in Nehemiah's day. And uh, one of the challenges was from the existing political leaders. In fact, uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15 says this, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. So what he's saying is Nehemiah is coming back He's assessing the situation. He's eventually going to come the, the new governor. He's rebuilding the wall. And he recognized that the previous administration was basically taxing the people and putting burdens on them that were so significant it was hurting the prosperity of the people and, and not allowing them to recover from the captivity. And it's interesting. Nehemiah makes the decision in chapter 5, verse 15, He says this, but I did not do so. He did not continue the burdening practice of taxation that the previous governors. Why? says here, because of the fear of the Lord. Because of the fear of God. Nehemiah came back from Susa to Jerusalem to build the wall. And Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem persecuted him. Tried to set him back. But again, he eventually became the governor of Judah. But it says here, Nehemiah feared God, and so he didn't take advantage of the people. That's the point. As the governor, he could have come in and taken advantage of the people by continuing these unhelpful taxation practices. Do you see, do you see the connection here? The fear of the Lord is what will motivate you to do the right thing even when you could get away with doing the wrong thing and no one would question you. No one's going to tell the governor what to do. And he could have come in. It, it was the previous administration's practice. It was the precedent that was set. No problem. But he said, I fear God. This is wrong. I'm not going to do it. And that gives us a real helpful insight. The fear of God is what motivates our obedience. And this is a great insight for, for I was going to say, for parenting, if you're dealing with short people, but it also works for big people too. What is it that drives and compels us to do what is right. You know, in in parenting, we could just typically tell our children, you know what, you just need to do this because I say so, and I'm the king of the house, right? And and that's one style of fatherhood or parenthood, isn't it? Just just the sort of totalitarian uh, dictatorship type of thing. And, you know, when kids are really little and they don't understand things, you know, basic rules is what you're putting in place, absolutely. But as they grow... 
what this book is saying is that we're not supposed to just tell them we do this because it's right or we do this just because, but the point here is we do things out of fear or reverence or love for the God whom we serve. Obedience follows our relationship with God. And it's because He says certain things are right and because He says certain things are wrong that we live accordingly. We're we're living, it's motivating how we live. So the fear of God is a motivation for obedience. Back to Proverbs. Notice, uh, fourthly, fearing God is the source of godly confidence. Fearing God is the source of of godly confidence. I love this. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. This is one of my favorite verses regarding the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. This, this should be This should be written across every refrigerator in our church's kitchens, in our homes. They should be in our cars, taped up on the bathroom mirror. Look at this verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord... There is strong confidence or trust. That word confidence means trust or power. Why is that so important? Why is that so profound? Because we can, human fallenness, our, our, our fallen condition, our, our indwelling sin leads us, when we think about confidence, to two extremes, okay? Two extremes. You have people that have no confidence, and you have people that are overly confident. Okay? Now, now let me just demonstrate this. Okay, let's talk about the overly confident people. Okay? How many of you watched college football yesterday? How about those Aggies, huh? All right. Um, all you have to do is watch 30 seconds of a sports event, and you will see the overconfidence of sinful Holland humanity illustrated in glorious technicolor, right? Um, Those guys are so overconfident sometimes, their heads bobble. You know, they just, they're just so into the thing, right? Overconfidence. When we trust in ourselves, our skills, our talents, our looks... Overconfidence. And God, through the scriptures, tell us that God is opposed to the proud. Those who are lofty and puffed up, He will humble. Because the confidence we put in ourselves is illusion. I mean, just just think, when that kicker missed the extra point, Right? Or when we think we're doing pretty well and a hurricane approaches the coast, and with all of our modern technology, all of our modern uh, information systems, we can't do anything to stop a natural disaster. 
We think we're doing great. And then we age and we get old and our body begins to fail and we can't throw that football like we used to. We can't think clearly to make those decisions as we once used to. Our, our cognition begins to slow down. Our metabolism begins to slow down. Things break. That we, we get sick. We get disease. And every person in this world dies with the thought in mind, this is how we end. I've put confidence in myself my whole life, and yet this is how I die. God is opposed to the proud. But there's another extreme too, and those are people that have no confidence. And the world's answer to people that have no confidence is self-esteem. Have you noticed this? Self-esteem was was really a, a phenomenon of the 70s and 80s. It is alive and well today. If you have a child who doesn't feel good about himself, doesn't think he can do anything, what you're supposed to do is make him feel better about himself by telling him all sorts of things about himself that are lies. Isn't that self-esteem? You're going to tell him a whole bunch of things that aren't true to make him feel better about himself. In fact, I, I, I love, uh, the, you know, so schools do the, the school uh, brochure for school pictures. One of the marketing things, I saw this in a school picture brochure, said, school pictures increase your child's self-esteem. So buy our pictures. And you know what's happened is so much of Christianity has taken the the self-esteem movement and the self-love movement and has Christianized it, right? Jesus loves you, so you should love you too. Um, by the way, that's wrong for some of you that might, might be like, what's wrong with that? Um, that's wrong because Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. Because the, the reality is, we can't, it is true, we, we cannot put confidence in ourselves. We, we are not competent, we are not able, we are not capable in ourselves. We are lost and limited and sinful and our own worst enemies, ultimately. So what hope do we have? People telling us lies so that we feel about our, better about ourselves, so now we're putting our confidence in ourselves even more? No, the only hope for the issue of confidence in the Christian life is to die to yourself and take up a cross and follow Jesus, that we find our confidence in Him instead of ourselves. That's the solution. And that's what this text, that's why this is so, this is so profound. It's not self-esteem is the answer when I don't feel confident and I need confidence, so I need self-esteem. It's not to put confidence in my gifts and abilities and accomplishments because all those things ultimately fail, all those things ultimately fall short. We, we, we are fallible and we are finite and those things are not a solution. So what is the solution? Look back at the text. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 26. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. We have confidence by putting it in someone who is a solid and sure and reliable foundation. We don't put our confidence in our skills. We put them in his skills. We don't put our confidences in our abilities. We put it in his ability. We don't put confidence in what we can do. We put our confidence in what he can do and did for us. And the Bible says if we are in him, we have everything. 
I have been crucified with Christ. You know this. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then remember that part? The life that I live now by faith, I live where? In the Son of God. So my identity, my confidence, my hope, my ability comes only because I'm connected with the God of the universe through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have confidence in Him. The Christian rightly says, not me, but the Lord. Isn't that what we say? Not me, but the Lord. And if there is any goodness in my life, whether it's natural talent or abilities or giftedness, if there's any goodness in my life in terms of uh, spiritual giftedness, ministry effectiveness, whatever, the Christian rightly says, all from God. Remember, Scripture tells us, why do, why do we... Why do we sometimes act as though those gifts were inherent in us instead of recognizing that those gifts have simply been given to us by God? And so, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? That's, that's, that's the bottom line. That's the takeaway. Let him who boasts, Boast in the Lord. We see this also, you don't need to turn there, but in Job, this is that point where Eliphaz, remember one of the three bad counselors, one of his friends is speaking. He's, he's actually kind of mocking Job in Job chapter 4 verse 6, and he says, after Job's servants and livestock are killed, his family is taken, he gets boils all over his feet from head to toe, his life, wife tells him to just curse God and die. And Eliphaz, in mocking Job for trusting in God, says this. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? And you know what? He's right. He's right. That is where our hope should lie. That is where our confidence should be. So here's the question. Where's your confidence? Where is it? If you're good at things, can I just tell you, it's so tempting if you're good at things to put your confidence in those abilities. But you know what those are? Those are gracious gifts that God has given you. And here's the litmus test. How do you know where your confidence is? Where do you boast? And where do you trust? You know, in a sense, prayer and praise are the two litmus tests of confidence, right? If my prayer life is thriving, you know what that says? I'm relying on the Lord. I'm trusting Him. I recognize that everything that I, every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? And prayer shows me that I am living in light of that reality. I can say that, but if I'm praying, that shows that I really do believe it, and I'm living in light of the fact that everything I have comes from God. So prayer is the first litmus test. You know what the second litmus test is? Is praise. That when something goes well, when I accomplish something, when by God's grace I engage in effective, fruitful ministry, when I, when I fix a car, when I heal a patient, when I do whatever is my praise and boast in the Lord. As that person is walking away having been helped, as that car is driving away having been fixed, as that project is completed having been done well, am, am, I, am I whispering to the Lord? And am I 
saying to those around me, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. So where's your confidence? Okay. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time and your word. And uh, we, we confess that we need to fight this tendency to exalt in ourselves and to put confidence in ourselves when everything that we have has come from you. Lord, I pray as we grow in the fear of the Lord and in a relationship of love and trust and obedience with you, that, that we would pray more because, not because we, we know we should pray more, but we pray more because we have to pray. We need to pray. We, we depend on you. And that we would praise and boast in the Lord uh, from whom are all things. Lord, I pray, would you make us people that depend on you and find our confidence in you? And might we find, might we find in you a stable and sure foundation that regardless of what happens circumstantially, regardless of what happens physically to our bodies or relationally with people or vocationally with our jobs or our work, that we would have an anchor because our confidence is founded upon you and you are stable, you are sure, we know who you are, we trust you, we depend on you. And might that lead to greater praying and greater praising as we live dependent on you. Lord, help us to grow in the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.